Doug South Studios in Oxford, Mississippi. We're mass communicating. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for them. This is the End of the Line Podcast, powered by DougSouth.com. I give it a, uh, a 10. A 10. Sweep the leg. You have a problem with that. And now, here your host, Rocky LaFleur. Everybody on? Good. Great. Grand. Wonderful. No yelling on the bus. Josh Webb. Sorry I had a fight in the middle of your butt. I'm part of And Jake LaTondres. I'm bad news. Also starring Rob Crew. I bet this guy's into the woods a hundred bucks. And Bradley Ramsey. Bill Martin inside. Showtime. All right, here we go. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. Showtime, everybody. Showtime. Welcome to the End of the Line podcast. I'm Rocky LaFleur in the Duck House Studios in Oxford, Mississippi. Joining me again this week, Jake LaTondres. Jake? Home alone, right? Kind of. What's that? Kind of home alone right now. You're playing Bachelor. Yeah, I wouldn't call it that, man. I got, because I got a five-year-old here who is really active and doesn't like to sit around. Actually, he does like to sit around and watch his iPad, which he's doing right now. But when we get outside, man, it gets busy and, uh, you know, like I did, yeah, I took him bluegill fishing yesterday again, and I mean it was just chaos because he was catching. They were trying, they were trying to take the worm two at a time, and it was just insane. I was trying to bass fish on the side, and it just it just didn't work. <laughs> did uh, do you have those moments where you stop? Just it it, it hits you, really hits you in the face, and you're like. Oh man, that's me. That's me. Oh. Forty forty years ago. Man, don't make me cry, Rocky. I mean, I'm not I trying, do that. No, I'm not, I'm no not I know you're to, not. My, my I'm just saying it. With with Wilson, it's the same way. It hits me, man. I'm like, God, that's me. Yeah. Oh, I took a picture. I put I superimposed or didn't superimpose it, but I side by side did a split screen comparison of my picture when I was five and his picture uh, when when now when he's five. And so this is no kidding, Rocky. Uh, you know, my wife's been gone, so he comes he comes in our room and sleeps with me at night now uh, while my wife is gone because he's scared of the dark. And so I had my phone on uh, two nights ago and I showed him, I showed him that picture, and, I, and I'm on the left, he's on the right, and I said, who is that? And he goes, that's me. And I said, well, who's that? He goes, well, that's me too. And I just started laughing, and he got mad at me. He goes, why are you laughing at me, Daddy? I said, I'm not laughing at you, son. I'm laughing because we look so much alike that you can't even tell us apart. <laughs> And and it's it's so true. I'm I'm texting you that photo right now, so you can see the the viewers won't be able to, or the the audience won't be able to see it, but I'm texting it to you so you can see it. Oh wow! You see what I mean? Wow! 
I mean, besides the, the besides the hair the being hair a little color. darker on you, I mean, y'all look just alike. Oh, uh, the frontal shot is um, it's crazy. And I don't, I don't, I don't bring it up to you often because all three of my kids look like me, <laughs> and my wife hates that. <laughs> she didn't hate it, but you know how moms are, man. They want, they at least want one of their daughters to look like them, and all the kids look like me. But I laugh because. We were in Virginia the other day visiting her family. All her family uh, said that Walker looks just like her, and and I just kind of chuckled under my breath, thinking it's the blonde hair. And I get that, and I'm a, I'm gonna I'm not gonna bring I'm not gonna I'm gonna let that go. But you know I know differently. <laughs> Genetic well, is an unbelievable thing, man. Well, coming up in just a minute, we've got Rob Heflin, the game warden, coming on to tell some old game warden stories. And we talk about flying a little bit more, being a pilot. And we recorded this last week. I'm trying to remember exactly what we – I know that we talked about uh, manipulation of, of ag crops and ducks. But anyway, determining – if something's been baited or not by a game board and how they do that. It's pretty interesting. All right, That's going to so, be a really interesting, interesting conversation. You know, he was, he's one of those game wardens, dude. He didn't go home at eight o'clock and mm -hmm. he was done for the day. He, he, he earned his small salary from the state. Uh, <laughs> he, he went, he went almost uh, undercover fed in a state position to try to catch, you know, yep. he, he, he respects, he has a great amount of respect for duck hunting, Rob did. And so it bugged him when people broke the law to, to kill more ducks or to just to disrespect the sport. It, it drove him crazy. Mm -hmm. So that's coming up in just a minute. It's, it's really interesting about talking about how they, you know, because I asked him, I said, listen, how do you tell somebody baits a cornfield that's a cornfield? How do you tell somebody goes up there and mm -hmm. throws a five-gallon bucket out? Pretty mm -hmm. interesting. But I, Man, I, I really, I'm going to tune into that myself because, I def I have questions going way back in time from when I was younger because you know growing up in West Tennessee we always hunted flooded corn and you couldn't get out in the boat or in a vehicle before it was flooded or anything and knock the corn down but right. one of the things that people did one of the things that people did was they go in when they shot a cripple they got away in the corn they go they they go in and 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 quote unquote search up and down those rows and cr crisscrossing those rows trying to look for that duck when you know we all know what they were really doing they were knocking that corn down and making more food available for the ducks <laughs> so there is a fine line between you know what's baiting and what's not and i and i i don't know the big differences and i'd love to i'd love to hear that mm -hmm. hey before we got on the line I was I was reading something about the and, and I know this has been discussed at length in different places, but the top twenty 
brokest professional athletes. I think this list will amaze you, man. You love sports as much as I do. It is mm. it is unbelievable the names that are on this list. Yeah, it that that's that's a that's a very interesting topic, man. Because you know you always hear people say, "Man, put give me a million dollars, I'll turn it into ten million dollars." Or I can't believe that guy did that. I would never do that. But you know what? I've also I have some very wealthy friends who are clients of mine and i've talked i brought this up before in conversation with them like what's it like to go because some of them went from really being poor to rich like really fast and i asked the question what's it like you know being being poor or, or or middle class and then all of a sudden in a year being super wealthy millions of dollars coming out of your ears you know and one one of the responses one of the most common responses was well, you got to figure out how to pay taxes. <laughs> and then, you know, one of the other responses I got, common responses was, look, man, the only you don't really change yourself. The only thing that changes is the more money you have, the more money you spend. And that hit me hard because, you know, I, I think that's probably the truth of the matter. And that's why these people get themselves in trouble, these athletes, because they don't change. They are who they are. They weren't business majors in college. They were, you know, college athletes and then they got super rich and a they didn't know how to pay taxes and they spent their money way too fast i think it's just the availability of it being there you would you, you spend money on things that that are you know really need you start filling wants cars houses I mean, I think people typically use it to build personal leverage and personal power, you know, because they can. <laughs> I think the people that build it from scratch, from mm. nothing, slowly, uh, they're more careful with their money and usually have it longer. But the people that become, let's just take these professional athletes. They they go from high school, college to making, you know, getting a $20 million signing bonus. That, you know, yes, it is earned, but it's, you look at it, it's almost unearned. I, I think that's, I totally agree with you 100%. I mean, it's earned, but it's unearned. Yeah, well, I mean, well, you, how, how would you argue with this? It's earned, but it may not necessarily be deserved. I mean, I, I struggle with how much money. I'm a huge sports fan, just like you are. But, man, I struggle with how much they make. Like, why can't duck hunters make that much money? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, that, that's a lot of money, man. It absolutely amazes me the the contracts that are that are in place now. You know, I, one of well, I guess what got me looking at it is early this morning I first woke up. A video as soon as I for some reason 
popped up on my phone. It was a little short documentary about Allen Iverson. I saw that. And I saw that the other day. Two hundred. He he made two hundred million dollars mm-hmm. over his career in the NBA. Absolutely broke. Mm-hmm. But thank goodness that Reebok and his agent talked him into put money away for him, but he can't touch it until he's fifty three. Yeah, it's a trust. And yeah, in a, in a trust. But he went through $200 million, and the most interesting parts of this is, I'll give you one that just blew me away. He left a, a, a car at the airport. He walked around mm-hmm. for 15 or 20 minutes, couldn't find it. So, you know what he did? Gave he went to the dealership and bought, a, he went to the dealership and bought another one. I mean, Mike Tyson, I saw under the same series, I saw that documentary about Mike Tyson. And he was, remember when he wrecked that Bentley? You remember that? He broke a guy's arm. He wrecked it. He hit another, hit a tree or hit a car, a parked car. The guy broke his arm and he gave the guy, like he was a, it was a kind of a fender bender on, on his Bentley. And he gave the car, the Bentley to the guy that broke his arm on the scene. He just threw him the keys and he said, here, you can have this or whatever. Took a cab home because his wife at the time, Robin Gibbons, was in the car with him. And what he explained on this documentary is they were fighting and he wanted to get out of there as quickly as possible because she was causing a scene and he figured the easiest way to do it was to give that guy a $400,000 car and just be done with it. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, he, that's another guy. He, he's broke now. He's, I think he's starting to lift himself and he's using the, uh, legal marijuana industry to do it. But he was talking about this, this documentary called Tyson on Netflix. It's really interesting. He's, he's just so, you know, polarizing and galvanizing at that. But he talked about having $400 million and then being broke. And he actually says in there, that I'm happier now that I'm broke because I don't have anything, which means no one wants anything for me. And man, you, you almost kind of relate to it. You can't relate to it because neither of us have ever had, at least I haven't had $400 million, but you kind of feel sorry for the guy because you put yourself, it goes back to that old Elvis phenomenon that we always used to use when we were kids. Like, you know, it's like being Elvis. You can't go anywhere. No wonder the guy, you know, overdosed on drugs because he couldn't even leave his house because people wouldn't leave him alone so he spent his money on on i guess things that he tried to make himself happy with let me ask you two questions one's a personal one's of an opinion if you were thrown into one of those positions would you have a posse i would and and, and for that for that posse and them being your friends and hanging out and you know, playing Xboxes on 150-inch screen TVs or watching the game that weekend or whatever, do you buy everything for them? Or do you expect them, hey, to bring the steaks to cook on the grill every once in a while? Okay. I'm going to – I'm gonna. here's how I'm going to answer that question that you're asking me because I don't know – People say it's hard, it's hard to say what you would do until you're in that position, right? But when I when I owned my business on Lake McConaughey, 
one of I had a 27 unit RV park around my store and around my whole little fortress there, and one of my one of my uh, clients that had a something that had a camper there. She lived there in the summertime or on weekends. Was from Denver, and she was uh, Carmelo Anthony's personal chef at his house. You know, when he played for the Denver Nuggets, and he played there for quite a few years. And the stories that she used to tell me about about what happened when he like when he was out of town. And the reason I'm telling you this is because it was his entourage. Like he flew to his NBA games with his team, and he didn't need his entourage. But when he came home and he was out in public, he always had an entourage, and they lived in his house 24/7 when he wasn't there, and he bought he he paid for everything, and this lady, his chef, told me that it was insane when he left town, the parties and all the just all the hoopla that went on at his house when he wasn't there. So, you know, knowing that. I probably I probably would have a posse, but I don't know that I would be paying for everything. I'd be hiring people under a salary basis and keeping that distance from them too, so they didn't take advantage of me. I mean, you just it's in it's human nature to take advantage of situation, right? I'm not saying it's right, but it's human nature. No, no. Oh, yeah, it is big time. I mean, it's, it's been that since the beginning of time. Even since we've had kings in the world, you, you wanted to be a part of the the posse or the court, kingdom court. You know that that's always been a a desire, a desire to feel important, a desire to. It, it's just it is human nature, but mm-hmm. but but you still I, you still can control it though, right, Rocky? Because that, then this is where I get heated in a discussion like this because it, it bothers me that people take advantage of other people. And while it is human nature, we still have control. Plus, we are creatures of, of intelligence, and we can decipher what's r- right and wrong, even if it goes against the grain of our, you know, primitive DNA, right, as, as, as whatever, as as homo sapiens i mean you still got to be able to you can't go around raping people and you can't go around you know stealing people's money just because it's human nature right no but here's the difference though there's an environment a lot of these people that are members of posses come from Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they they come from a they they're 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 part of that to fulfill something deep inside and it's i think a lot of it comes from environments uh, from when they were growing up, maybe not having a family. Same thing as a guy joining a gang. Mm-hmm. A lot of times a guy joins a gang is because he never had a home life, family life. That's his family. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. But, right, let me ask you this. Hey, let me ask you this. Go ahead. Go ahead. Are, are, right. And this this is opinion. Are mm-hmm. Are famous people more famous today than they were 30, 40 years ago, you brought up the Elvis deal. Do we freak out more? Let me ask you this. What I mean by this is, does a 16-year-old girl freak out more now than a 16-year-old girl 40 years ago? No, no. That, 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 I feel like, is a solidified no, 
because the level of freak outedness is the same, but the number of people and the 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 speed acceleration at which people become famous is much higher now because of social media and the digital platform. But I think the level, the elevation of, of excitement, that can't really change. I, I think, you know, a, a person redlines at 7,000 RPMs and the next person, I mean, you know, we all have different tolerance levels for, for excitement, but I think an excited young 16-year-old girl that, you know, used to be in the 1970s, got excited about Teen Magazine or whatever, is the same girl, 16-year-old excited girl that gets excited on Instagram. And it's the same level of, of, of uh, human energy. Dude, it amazes me. It amazes me how fast the wheels turn now. And what I mean by that is, you kind of brought that up in what you were saying. You know, when we were growing up, somebody was famous for, you take the late 70s throughout, throughout the 80s. Usually, somebody that was popular in the pop culture, they stayed famous for a while. They stayed on teen magazines for a while. They were in multi-multi-movies. And what you see today, here today, gone tomorrow. Man, I was watching. It, you take actors that were popular in 2012. You don't see them anymore. And, and the people that's popular right now, as we speak, in 2024, they'll be begging for work. You mean they're begging for work now, or they will be? No, no. In, in, two, in 2024, they'll be begging oh, for work. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's actually an interesting topic, and it relates to the whole hunting world, too, because, you know, I, I've seen this personally, and I used this sort of, uh, I don't know, this, this, the experiences that I'm witnessing, I'm using it as a guide for myself because of what you just said. And I think that's really interesting and it's really important for people to understand they're, you know, wanting to be professional in the outdoor world or whatever world you're in. And if you let it die, you'll dissolve. If you stop growing, you'll dissolve. And that's what happens because, or, or people like musicians or athletes grow out of you know what they do because they're not kids anymore and they don't relate to the, the the big masses of people that come out to watch whatever it is they're doing so the hunting world going back 20 years when i first started people at that time that were the iconic figures in the industry were jay gregory mark drury um you know tim grounds um you know those kinds of people that were iconic to the industry while some of them might still be, if you look at what they're doing, like Mark and Terry Drury, for instance, they never stopped growing. They can, they adapted to the digital platform. They adapted to, they brought uh, Taylor in, you know, Mark's daughter, to relate to a younger crowd, and Matt, Terry's son, to relate to a younger crowd, and they're kind of the face of their of their brand now. So they adapted, and they've done really well with it. You take some of these other people, they've totally dissolved. And not totally, but pretty much dissolved and they're irrelevant. And I'm not saying that in a bad way because I, I love some of these people that I'm talking about and I, I respect them and I appreciate everything that they've done because they've paved the way for the rest of us. But if you're not careful, 
you will dissolve and uh, you know you, you have to continue to innovate you have to come up with new ideas be more creative and it becomes more and more challenging because more and more people are involved in what we're doing and and I'll, I'll bet you the same thing exists i mean you take high school football recruiting uh to a different level because now i mean i had a call from a guy in, in tennessee whose son is being recruited by a half a dozen really big division one football programs like like ohio state and Alabama and schools like that and he wants to get even more offers and more opportunities and it's really competitive for them because there's so many high school athletes and they all have they all have social media platforms and they all have videographers that come in and build video uh, highlight reels for them and stuff like that so you know again it's just competitive all across the board and and the most important thing is is if you dissolve you're going to go away. There's no doubt about it. Uh, yeah, I mean, or not, and not dissolve. Even just become stagnant. Same thing. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. Yeah. Whatever you want. To yeah. Call it. You know, you just you go. You become irrelevant. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I fully agree with you. You know that Mike Tyson story, though, man. That it, that is a that is an amazing story because. I was actually watching a clip from the Joe Rogan show when he was on it a few months ago. Mm-hmm. And it, just like you said, he appreciates where he is now more than he did where he was, you know, when he had four or $500 million. Right. Exactly. And, I, I feel, and, he, and he's not a big talker. You know, Joe. I feel Joe sorry for the drag. guy, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Joe was having to drag stuff out of him. I think and... it's because he was high. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, he uh, he smokes a lot of weed. He's he's like he's he. I don't know if you know this, Rocky, but Mike Tyson is opening, and uh, I believe it's going to be ready in 2021. When when and, and I think what they're doing is waiting on you know the legality of marijuana to become federal. But they have, he's gotten some billionaire investors involved and they bought a big piece of property out in California and they're building a place called the Tyson Ranch. And, and it all revolves around, you know, before everybody goes, Oh my God, he's at it again. Let me finish. It, it revolves around the marijuana industry, but what his goal is, it's a resort and it's a getaway resort. And their goal is to, is to help people that are stressed in life that you come out there and your purpose to come out there. I mean, you can go see a shrink, you can get a massage, you can go to the spa, you can go parasailing, golfing, biking, hiking, like all these different things. You can smoke weed while you're there, but the whole place is designed. It's like a, it's like a rehab facility for people to come get rid of stress in their life. And so, and, 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 I may not have put all the details in there that that are you know explanatory and descriptive enough to 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 explain it like Mike Tyson or his his uh, his investors do, but when you really look at what they're doing and why they're doing, it's actually a good thing, and you can see why he's doing it because that man has lived under so much stress his whole life because of who he was and what he did that. This is what it's come down to. He's literally living his life to figure out how to be stress-free now. 
I thought you were going to say it was a place where people could come and smoke. They can. It is. It is definitely that. But it's it's not just some you know some coffee shop in Amsterdam where you go and you get high just to be high and, and worthless. It's somewhere to go to get away from your stresses and and figure out how to deal with it. I mean, it's set up like a rehab center, not not a rehab or a recovery center, but it's set up. Oh God, what is the word I'm looking for? It's set up like it's a spa, and it's there to help you relax and meditate and do all those things to help overcome your stress. So yeah, you can go there and smoke your pot, but that's not what it's just about. It's just that's a tool that they use to help people relieve themselves from stress. You know, when, yeah, when you were describing this thing, I was thinking about the Hotel California, the Eagle Song. You can check uh-huh. out any time you like, but you can <laughs> never leave. You know, because yeah. how do you get somebody's high high to uh, to check out and leave? Man, that's a slow process. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's probably they probably don't want people to leave because the longer you stay, the more money they're gonna make. <laughs> so anyway, man, Jake, what do you? This got is an interesting for the topic. The fourth your plans for the fourth. I don't know yet. My wife's birthday is on the second, so the second is more important to me than the fourth. And I have mean that no disrespect to the U S at all, because independence day is a, is a, is a huge thing to me too. As y'all know, I'm, I'm, I wear the red, white, and blue stripes and, and, and I love my country. So I'll get to July 4th. Once we get to my, my, my wife's birthday. How's that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you and I are get back together next week. We'll, We'll record one before the week's out. Got a little surprise for you. I hadn't told you about this, Jake, and we'll have to talk about it off the air because the audience won't find out about it until the next week after the fourth. I'll tell you about it when we stop the recorder. But Jake, I've enjoyed it. Uh, it's been a great opener. I hate we didn't go down that list, but man, it's the likes of Terrell Owens, Lawrence Taylor, Vince Young. Mm. You know, you know. Mm. I'll, I'll say this before I go, Vince Young. You know, Vince Young is literally broke, broke, broke. He signed one of the biggest contracts out of college to the NFL ever. He's broke, broke, broke. Mm-hmm. He had to beg a Texas alumni for a job in the athletics department. That job paid $120,000. Now, to a lot of us, that wow. seems like good money. Mm-hmm. But to him, he never showed up for work. In the University of Texas, which he was the – most unforgettable, one of the most unforgettable heroes in college football history, not only for Texas. You remember when they beat USC that year? Oh, when he did that end around, uh, bootleg yeah. into the corner to win the game. I mean, he's one of the yeah. most, that, that play is one of the most iconic plays in college football history. Yeah, top top 10 easy. Top 10 mm-hmm. plays, top top five. You, you see it's it always going to come up in high in high when they play back in national championship highlights. That's one they're always going to have in there for sure. So, say this before I go: they had to fire Vince Young at the University of Texas out of the athletics department 
that that would be like old Miss firing Archie Manning. Mm-hmm. Or or Tennessee or Tennessee firing Peyton. Mm, I, I don't know that I would go that far, Rocky, because Vince Young we all knew Vince, I mean Vince Young was almost illiterate and literally and, and I say that without any criticism towards him at all. But the guy could barely read. I remember reading an article about ha- him having to have someone read him his contract, you know, when he got to the NFL because he just couldn't read it. And he, in my opinion, I mean, from an athletic standpoint, yes. From a from a uh, from a, a a character standpoint, not even in the same breath as as Archie Manning and Peyton Manning or. But I'm just know, saying to their, you know, to the pers- what it means to that their they're related school? to. Yeah, sure. I, I, yeah, I, I I see where you're coming from. I see where you're coming from. In in, in the sense of what they did for their school on the field. Mm-hmm. True. True enough. But there's but you know there's been some great players come through Tennessee and Texas or whoever you want to name. But it'll always be Archie and Eli at Ole Miss. Right. For sure. But I just thought that list was that list was crazy. You know, in 1980, I was at the Ole Miss-Georgia game, and you see the highlights of Herschel Walker when he jumped over. It was fourth and one, and he was going over the pile. He got hit, and he corkscrewed down, landed on his feet, and ran in the end zone. It's like they were, you know, it was a a fourth and goal or fourth and one. So they really just needed a first down to continue the drive, but he ended up scoring a touchdown. Do you remember that play? Do you, you remember seeing that highlight? Herschel Walker had a field day against yeah, Ole Miss. I was at I was at that game in Oxford. Talk about a the greatest college football player that man. If it happened today, we would say he's the most screwed person in the world. Herschel won the Heisman what his sophomore year, junior year, junior year, deserving of it his freshman and sophomore year, but they would not vote for him. Right, because he was a freshman and sophomore. That's right, and he should have won it. He should have won. Really, he should have won it a sophomore year. And, and it's funny you bring this. We bring this up because I remember I was in a little store called Mom and Dad's in Camden, Tennessee, and Tennessee was winning fifteen to nothing at halftime against Georgia. My dad and I were driving down the road. In a night, or we, he just got back in the truck because I was like, "Let's get out of the store. I want to hurry." I was, I wanted to get back in the truck so we could hear the rest of the game. It was on AM radio. We were in a 1968 Ford Bronco. We were going dove hunting, or uh, we were going hunting that day. We stopped off to get some snacks. Turned the radio back on, and at halftime, this guy, this this freshman kid, comes in for Georgia because they weren't getting anywhere. It's 15 to nothing. This freshman kid comes in the game called Herschel Walker, and he freaking blew up, and, ten, and and Georgia won the game 16 to 15. <laughs> I'll never man. forget that, man. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that was the day he uh, Herschel Walker was introduced to the to to college football, and and they beat Tennessee. We need to we need to have that argument next week. Better back Herschel or uh, Bo in college. Yeah, Lee. Well, Jake, we are out of time. 
we got to get to this interview with Rob. Look, we'll talk first next week. We're going to do one more before the holiday because we're probably going to Thursday and Friday. There will not be a podcast next week. You and I will get back together and, and record something at the first of the week, though, when you have some time. All right, Rocky. Well, thank you, man. I appreciate it. Heck yeah. Thank you again, bud. But let's get to this interview with Rob now. This call is being recorded. In three, two. All right, guys, like I told you on the front end of the podcast, Hathenator. Rob, you're out on the road and I'm out on the road. You are, but you are headed back to fly some custom clients out to a little guided fishing trip out of Bell Chase, right? Yeah, I'm headed back to Louisiana. I've been up in uh, in the Mississippi Delta, tending to my duck and my deer food plots, and, and uh, I, I flew some bear biologists a couple of days ago to look for a couple of black bear sows that have radio collars on, and uh, they were wondering how the flood had affected them. And, and uh, anyway, but I'm headed back to Louisiana now. I got a couple of trips this weekend. How long of a flight is that from Bell Chase to where y'all are fishing? It's about 40, 35, 40 minutes, 45 minutes, depending on which island we go to. But uh, it beats about a two-hour boat ride. Man. I don't know if you remember this, but but years ago when I was – I don't know what you were – going for at that point but and maybe we were just doing it for for fun but we 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 had landed in Grenada one time just to touch and go and came back over the lake and you know that that when you take back off you or land whatever you're coming in and there to the airport over the lake but we got beat up because of the the heat or the whatever it was coming off the, the the that body of water, is it the same thing in the Gulf of Mexico? Yeah, when the when the sun heats up the ground, different types of terrain heat up differently. And uh, if it's all wooded, or if it's farm fields, or or parking lots over subdivisions and stuff. Uh, they all heat up differently. You got those columns of rising air, the thermals, were like a buzzer. Thermals. Just yeah, you know they keep circling, circling, and they're getting higher, but they're not flapping. Well, they're just riding a thermal. And when you fly through those, uh, it kind of picks the plane up and drops it a little bit. Everybody calls it air pocket, but it's not an air pocket. It's just it's like uh, currents in the stream. Uh, it's the same thing on land. You've got different currents. I mean same thing in the air you got different currents in the air but early in the morning it's pretty smooth and calm usually and uh and typically in the summertime as the sun comes up and starts heating up everything it heats up the ground so you fly over water and fly over land and and then fly over you know something that's uh, a big black parking lot down below you can you can tell just as soon as you fly over it that air is moving. I bet the takeoff ability of that plane when y'all leave out in the morning with loaded down is uh, 
is a lot better than when y'all are taking off after the trip, after you fished. This it's gotten hot, and man, yeah. Once it, once it gets hot, man, that density altitude, it, it's you know we're taking off at sea level, but once you add that humidity and uh in the heat, you know it's 95 degrees. It's the it could be the equivalent of taking off uh somewhere that's three or four or five thousand feet in elevation where the air is thinner. So. What they call density altitude, so your performance is less. But the good thing about going out to the islands is usually you always have a breeze uh, blowing from the ocean, so you can turn and, and take off into it, and it gives you gives you uh, gives you a big boost trying to get off the water. You know, a lot a lot of people always when when you see these movies, whether World War Two or Top Gun, no matter what it is. You know they'll they'll get the ship into the wind. Gosh, man, out there in that, that those huge bodies of water. I mean, you may have a twenty thirty mile per hour wind, twenty thirty mile per hour of lift, and you point that yeah. sucker into the wind. Extra lift yeah. to get those planes off the aircraft carrier. Just like a duck or a goose, they're gonna almost always land in the wind and take off into the wind, and uh. You know, you throw your decoys out all about the wind. All duck hunters know how that works. It's the same thing for the airplane. I was just saying, just like ducks and geese land and take off into the wind, airplanes try to do the same thing. Hey, let me ask you this. You know, I made this post back in the winter, and a lot of people didn't agree with me. But if a if a day for a pilot is instrument only. Usually, it's not a good duck hunting day during the winter time. You agree with that or disagree? I don't know. Uh, I know I like hunting speckled bellies in the fog because they'll they'll keep flying until they find the call. But I guess it depends. You know, I always I never did get the chance to hunt flooded timber much, except for maybe on Panther Swamp in the in the cypress and the two below trees. It wasn't an oak forest like up in Arkansas, but it seemed like the sunny days, the ducks came in the timber, and the cloudy days, you hunted the fields, but I, I really only I hunted fields 99% of the time, so um, I guess it just depends on fronts and all that. Yeah, I mean, when you have a low visibility, uh, Usually on those days, it's, it's, it's real foggy. Um, ceiling's not real. Well, it, it's not high at all. Well, and you know, a bird, pressure. Will get somewhere, a bird will get somewhere and sit uh, on some of those days. So, yeah, sometimes it's not that great to hunt. And usually your pressure is in that day right before it starts coming down hard. Yeah. That's usually that day before the a big weather change. Yeah. But anyway. So, do you get stuff planned? Hey, let me say something. Do you remember Do you remember that time where you're flying and I was doing a bunch of night flying? And uh, uh, I don't know if you took off with me from my house, but I had those light bulbs set up down my airstrip and, like, tractor triangles. You know, I had the full Redneck Airport going on down there at Isola. Do you remember that? <laughs> and, uh... I had to change to like 
15 watt light bulbs and they had a hundred watt in there and they'd blind you when you were coming in. You know, I was learning all kind of stuff about uh, night flying, but I would go to, to Madison, to Starville, to Grenada and Cleveland and back, just building up night hours. And you were flying with me one night. And, uh, in that 170, you know, you had about two hours on one tank, two hours on the other, or you could put it on both. It was, it would drain out of both tanks at the same time. And I would put it like on the right tank and until it ran out and you'd hear it cough just a little bit. And I'd reach down in the floor and switch it over to the left. And, do you remember this? I, I do really well. I think we were flying up towards Grenada. <laughs> I remember that tank went dry and the airplane kind of uh, like that. And I just reached down and man, your eyes got big. Even in the dark, I could see him. You looked at me. What was that? What's wrong? I said, no, we're just, I said, that tank's dry. I'm going to switch over the left tank. We got two hours left. He's like, oh, uh, Rob, let's land. Let's please land. I said, Rocky, we, we got two hours a few left in this other thing. Please land, Rob. Just please land. And I said, we'll be fine. I'll never forget that night. <laughs> please land, Rob. Just please land. <laughs> oh, my, my. I have nothing but respect for you guys that, that, that go out and fly every day because uh, I'll tell you the short version. Uh, so I've been flying for a little while and I went and bought an airplane out in Texas. I don't even, I've told you this before. And anyway, that, that, that airport was surrounded by a pine tree plantation. So it was like a bowl. And so when I went to pick this airplane up, it was a little bit of wind that day. Supposed to, I got there at like seven o'clock in the morning. Supposed to leave. Well, the battery's dead in the airplane. Should have been my first sign right there. <laughs> Didn't, because after, a, if you left after, say, 11 or 12 o'clock, you, you could give it up. I mean, you're going to be dodging thunderstorms all the way back to Mississippi. Yeah. But anyway, so it's about 10 o'clock, got the battery changed out. Um, well, you know what happens in a bowled-in airport like that? The wind comes over the trees, then it yeah. starts spinning. Vortices. Yeah. Well, I'm sitting there looking at the sock and got it corrected for a crosswind. And, man, one of those vortices hits my wing when I get about 10 or 15 foot off the ground. And it just about flips that plane over. And somehow, some way. I pulled that airplane out of it. I got home. And I probably didn't fly for <laughs> two months. I, I just <laughs> bought an airplane. And the best thing to do in that situation, jump back in it and and go back to flying. Man, that, but then he, <laughs> I got home and that, the guy wanted me to call him and it freaked him out. The guy that I bought the plane from, he's on the ground watching all this take place. And it, it freaked me out a lot worse, a lot worse. Yeah, so. that wind, that, that wind has eddies in it, just like, just like if you set a big boulder in a stream and it's going to make an eddy behind it. Uh, that wind does the same thing, and it's it gets pretty exciting some days. Ooh. 
So that was the beginning of the end for me. That was it. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. So you've been planting. Yeah, planting for the I, I do a lot of a lot of moist soil management, which is my favorite. Uh, and I try to disc every two or three years, or or, or either go into a pond and disc half of it one year and half of it the next year, and keep that uh, early what they call early successional uh, stages going where I get a lot of grass and, and uh, you know, I, I got one pond that I probably had disc in about three years and I had cattails all up on the top end of it, little little bushes growing everywhere and willow, cottonwood trees starting. So I like discing all that stuff up, but uh, I, do, I do plant some crops. I plant corn and forage soybeans. And uh, I've tried rice before and millet and all that kind of stuff. But if I can get in there early enough, I'll plant some corn. But I don't plant everything in corn. I just have one pond maybe with some corn in it, a little soybeans, and the rest of my stuff some moist soil. I'm going to ask you, that, you bring up a, a great topic. And being a retired ex-game warden be a great topic to, to ask you about. Manipulation. It's a it's a topic that man it, it can really get into a gray area in duck hunting. You know who's to say that my definition of manipulation is the same as yours, or the same as a Fed, or the guy the county across from you. You know if I it, it's such a gray topic. What I mean by that is if I send my dog fetch a bird, and he starts knocking corn cobs off of flooded corn everywhere. Is that not manipulation? I can't remember exactly how the the law, the federal uh, code of regulations on all, on all the waterfowl stuff is worded, but you can walk back and forth. You can retrieve ducks, that kind of stuff. And you bump a stalk here or there. Uh, you know, it, it's that's not what the feral guys or even the state guys that work waterfowl hunt, that's not what they're looking at. What what I saw a lot and is really easy to see from airplane, really easy to see from the ground if you know what you're looking for, is when people go into a duck hole and they the corn is planted or the soybeans or the rice or whatever is planted and they haven't left a spot out to hunt. And in, in my ponds, when I plant crops, I leave an area, you know, three-quarters of an acre, an acre, half acre, whatever. I don't plant anything on it, and I let it grow up in grass. And the, the federal law says you can manipulate that grass. You can go in there and mow it or get your water out, and that's okay. But on, a, on an agriculture crop, you've got to... I lost you. Yeah. Just a normal agricultural harvest, you can do that, and then you can flood it and hunt it. Or you can plant it, leave it standing, and flood it and hunt it. And people say, well, flooding it, flooding the standing crop is not normal. Well, the law says you can do that, okay? Uh, but what you can't do is go in there and knock a whole bunch of standing crop down, scattering the seed, and hunt that. That's a manipulated crop 
and I saw that a lot where people would take their their side-by-sides and their four-wheelers and they would go in there and they would just ride a big circle. And you could see the stalks going one way and these next to it going the other way because well, they were ridden it back and forth. They knocked all that grain into the water, you know, where there's ears of corn or rice or uh, even Japanese millet uh, the first year you plant it. They're scattering that seed, and that's the same to the federal law as going out there and just throwing seed out. It's, it's, it's baiting. You're not actually, you planted it, but you knocked it down. So where people get in the most trouble is they plant something solid. They don't leave any spot for their blind and their hold hunt. And then they go in there right before season and knock it all down. They flood it, or they flood it, and then they knock it down. Then you've got to wait 10 days after all of that grain is gone before you can hunt it again. And if you, uh, you know, if it's an ear of corn, or rice, that stuff lasts a long time. You know, soybeans deteriorate pretty quick, but but you're talking about even on soybeans, if you knock it down, you're probably looking at a month uh, before all that stuff's gone. If a duck's coming there and eat it up, um, then you've got to wait 10 days after it's all gone. And the cases we made, people would go in there and knock big holes down, or, or else they would ride their four-wheeler back and forth, or their rhino or ranger or whatever, and they go to a blind a different way every time. Well, it doesn't matter if the trail you're using is getting bad and you're going to get stuck on that trail. You can't just pick a new trail to ride in there. Uh, the law doesn't say that you have to ride to your duck hole. You can walk to your duck hole. And I know everybody rides to their, to their blind and drops all their stuff off. But if you're riding over standing crop, knocking it down, you're manipulating it, you're ruining your duck hole. Um, and I know guys who have gone in, and maybe they didn't leave a hole. Well, I got corn planted. What do I do? And I always told them, hey, go in there and pick those ears of corn by hand, all the ones you knock down, get them out of there, and then wait 10 days, and you can hunt it. So we never did go out and inspect anybody's duck holes or, or dove fields. or We didn't do that kind of stuff, but we just told them what they were supposed to do. Uh, Made some you know the, big cases. Hey, let me ask you this. Do you know, I know you know this as a game warden. If somebody's got a flooded bean field, they'll take a five-gallon bucket out there and scatter soybean seeds. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, you changed your tone of voice. I mean, you know that happens. I know you know that happens with a lot of people. Corn. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just. How do you? How does a game warden? You don't have to give all the secrets, but how do you figure that out? Eh, you got to do your homework. Uh, I spent a lot of nights waiting duck holes, scooping bait. Uh, everybody thinks I'm at home in my bed. I'm out there checking duck holes, and uh, that was that was kind of my thing. I enjoyed that, but uh, it's a, it can be a challenge, but. Uh, if you have any kind of agricultural sense about you, uh, it's, it's, you can figure it out. Uh, I've seen where folks have gone through with their combine and leave their screen closed. And all, the, all the corn is right between the tracks out in the hole, and there's no other corn 
you know, anywhere else in the field except right between the tracks. That's that's pretty easy to figure it out. Uh, but, um, you know, some people do it and don't realize they're messing up, like when they knock a, knock a hole down. But it's right there in the Code of Federal federal Regulations about manipulation. And uh, you can even brush your blind up with corn stalks or rice or whatever as long as you don't scatter any seeds. So if you're pulling up Milo, you know, Milo brushes up a, a blind really nicely. And you can cut that Milo off and have a head on it and stick it down in your blind, but just don't scatter any seed. Be real careful about it because if you scatter seed, then your hole is manipulated. So 10 days after it's all gone, you'd hunt it again. So that, that messes a lot of people's season up. Especially people that are leasing places and they're paying a bunch of money and they go in there and they they mess themselves over when they manipulate it because then legally they're going to lose most of the season waiting on it uh, to get back right. And I think that the last manipulation case I made um, worked with the feds and uh, it was like a $20,000 fine. So they take that stuff pretty seriously. Uh, yeah. So it, a lot of people. Probably have already planted their duck goals except for down in South Delta. But up north, uh, a bunch of those guys are, are planting or just getting planted, planting, and uh, just just leave a spot out for your for your blind and don't plant it. Is, is what I always try to do. There's still a hole somewhere in South Delta with one of your cell phones in it because you were digging around trying to find bait one time because you went missing for about three days. I couldn't get a hold of you, and you said, ah, oh, I was working a case, dropped my hole in the water. Yeah, that was an $800 duck hole for me. Uh, it, was more, it was more than that for the guys who, who had the duck hole, but I got $800 in that case. What about the guy that opens the combine up a little bit? Shoots a little bit out the back. How you catch that well, guy? You got to do your homework. It's it's not easy, but it can be done. I mean, the thing gonna, here's the thing I'm about gonna, it is, yeah, I'm not going to tell you all my secrets, Rocky. No, no. He, I think the thing is, look, most game boards know where most historical places are. Am I right in saying that? For ducks. Wait, wait, say that again. Most game wardens that work in the area, they know normal historical places for ducks. Just say if you're working fight uh, LaFleur County. You know that fighting bows a that's a normal historical place was gonna hold a lot of birds on their sanctuary. Yeah, you know, every state's got hot spots. Every county's got hot spots. And uh, then some places are, some counties are just better than others. Everybody, everybody knows that. All right. So as a game warden, you drive by a field. It looks normal as it possibly can be. There's a pile of ducks sitting on that field, and they haven't been there in 20 years. You know something's going on, right? It's possible. Uh, whenever you see a big concentration of birds, it kind of catches your eye. That doesn't mean something's illegal. I've, I've, I've found big concentrations of birds before, and, and uh, the field was perfect, perfectly legal. 
So uh, it just depends. You, you look for clues, and once you start finding, once you start finding those clues, you uh, you uh, you got a reason to kind of pay a little more attention to it. You know, as you if you look at these. As you look at these bird maps that the the state does, the the when they fly and they do the bird counts, yeah, the duck counts. One thing that you notice on that thing, man, there. Can you talk about concentrated areas? There's about three or four in the state of Mississippi where, without calling them by name, you pretty much know where they are. Oh yeah. Is for the future of hunting, is that a good thing or a bad thing from your perspective? What you know about wildlife? What, having those maps out? No, 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 not the maps. But it used to be, if you look back when they first started doing counts, and I think their counts are accurate. Concentrating ducks in certain spots. Is it good or bad for duck hunting in the future? I don't know. You know, a lot of that, a lot of those duck surveys, my friend Houston Havens, uh, one of the MDWC waterfowl biologists, yeah, Houston really knows his stuff when it comes to ducks. Uh, he doesn't know a dead gum thing about deer, but he knows ducks. And uh, I hope he's listening to this and laughs. But he, uh, they do those surveys, and you know, they're trained to fly over and count, and, and you know they run the numbers and all that stuff. But most of the the concentration is directly related to habitat. And you oh, and I have talked, you and I have talked about this before. North eighty two or south eighty two, most. Gets most of the flooded fields. What do you think? Where do people uh, flood most, most of the rice and soybean fields? In the North Delta or South Delta? Well, it's a, it was for the years and years, it was the North Delta. The North Delta. Uh, everybody knows those counties. They flood their fields. And it's like south of Highway 82. I don't know what it is. Everybody's disking all their stuff, rowing it up. They leave it dry for the winter. Not, not all of their stuff, but. There's a larger percentage of flooded habitat in the North Delta than it is the South Delta, and that that shows up on those maps. Uh, you know, even even with the CRP and the WRP, a lot of this stuff you think all WRP and CRP is great for ducks. I bet you half of the WRP and CRP is planted in other than a couple of winter deer food plots being planted in it, nothing else gets done to it. So how many ducks do you know eat green briars and uh, trumpet creeper? You know, that's just not great duck habitat. And uh, <clears throat> so it, you can tell the people that take a lot of time and, and manage their habitat, and especially when you get a lot of landowners and public ground in an area that are all managing, that draws birds, no doubt. Yeah, the only thing I've never understood about those surveys, one thing that I've, and, uh, Houston was on the, the podcast, I guess it was last winter, 
And I forgot to ask him why. I, the thing about it is they, they never include numbers of birds that are sitting on federal or state held properties. Why not? Well, they show looks, they show up on the map. I mean, you know, they there'll be concentrations of them, and uh, you know, you know, all those birds in that particular area. Well, that's on such and such WMA. That's why they got all the birds right there. Uh, but I don't know. If they, they do have reports of each WMA. They do it on state, but I know they don't on feds on federal uh, refuges. I, I guess they just don't do the same program we do. Yeah, you know, because it's, boy, it leads into the old uh, the old argument that, that's been around for years and years. Uh, sanctuary, is it worth it? Well, yes. It, it's really, really a good thing. Because there's people that, well, the reason I say that, there's people that argue that say, oh, man, that sanctuary on such and such federal refuges, holding all the ducks. Well, you really look at it. Let's look at it from the private sense. The people that have good sanctuary for ducks, aren't they the ones that's usually killing ducks on the stuff yeah. that they do hunt? <laughs> if you've got enough land, to where you can have a sanctuary, that is a definite plus. Uh, you got to fight the urge to go in there and hunt that sanctuary. You maybe go hunt the last week of the season, but if the duck doesn't have anywhere that it can go and not be bothered, it's not going to hang around. You know, it's just all it's got to do is fly for an hour and be two counties over or across the river or, or something. And you, prime example. Mississippi, Arkansas, Louisiana seasons. They one one state opens up and the other one's closed. You know, when Arkansas opens up before we do, you'll see a bunch of ducks. Then we get Thanksgiving uh, Thanksgiving weekend, we open up. Well, everybody had ducks, but come that Sunday, hardly anybody's got any ducks anymore. Well, if Arkansas's closed, it, the ducks know. I mean, you know, you know, if you were flying around and got shot at, you would go somewhere where there wasn't a bunch of sheep, so the refuge definitely helps. But I understand the frustration when you've got a closed area on a on a, a national wildlife refuge, and there's jillions and jillions of ducks in there. Well, they're not coming over to your duck hole. I know that's frustrating, but in my opinion, that refuge is is vital to having ducks in an area. Now they may come to your hole at night, feed all night, then go back to the refuge and. That sucks when that happens when you're trying to hunt them. I've seen that happen a lot. Uh, but but the thing about it is, if you have consistent cold fronts coming through, I think you, you still, what happens is, if the weather turns stagnant, you don't have any cold fronts or just Pacific fronts coming through, weather never changes. I think your birds sit on the refuge sanctuary during the day. They've almost become nocturnal. They start feeding at night because they know if they get up and feed during the daytime, they're going to get shot at. Yeah, just like a buck. You see bucks running together late September and October, right when archer season starts. But the time rifle season comes around, of course, 
they're they're changing. They're not running in those bachelor groups anymore. But your buck shows up on your camera at two o'clock in the morning. He's not he's not on your camera at seven in the afternoon anymore. So animals aren't stupid. They they know when the pressure's on, they need to change. It was a cool. They had a bunch of those mallard hens. They put the I think the satellite trackers on, and uh, they were up there. Uh, around Howard Miller WMA in uh, Washington County. And Howard Miller, you know, has hunts on certain days of the week. Of course, everybody gets there as soon as it's legal shooting time. All the shooting starts. Those ducks would leave and go to Yazoo Refuge Sanctuary over there, no hunting. They would sit over there on Yazoo Refuge. And Houston may tell me I'm wrong about this, but I think I remember it correctly. And the hunting was was legally over on uh, Howard Miller at like 12 o'clock, you know, noontime. You had to have all your stuff out by 1. About 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, those ducks leave Yazzie River and come back to Howard Miller and feed. They figured it out. And uh, so then the state started letting people hunt till sunset on Howard Miller and uh, just to get a little more hunting opportunity. But those ducks pick up and go over there. They fly, you know, 10 miles, sit down sit all morning and wait for everybody to come back. Same thing on some of the other refuges. They'll fly over and sit on the Mississippi River until the hunting's over. And you can stand there. I can stand in the parking lot of, of uh, like Howard Miller WMA. And uh, I said, that was Muscadine up in Washington County. But Howard Miller down in Isquinta County, 1 o'clock in the afternoon when we're still there after we've checked everybody, the ducks start coming in. And they're coming in from way up high coming from the west. I mean, they know. They go sit until all the shooting stops and they come back. So, You know, the, the I don't know if it was the state or the feds that, that worked with a fighting bio back in the early 2000s and they were tracking those ducks, but they had put a tracking device on a teal. That sucker got up and left at daylight, flew over to Arkansas, Stayed for about an hour, flew down to central Louisiana for a couple hours, then made it back by dark to fight and bow to roost. That's crazy. And it's nuts. Yeah. Yeah, my, my friend Scott Baker, uh, it's a part of wildlife, and said, when things have wings, there's no telling where they're going to show up. Yeah, at one time they were, they had satellite transmitters on speckle belly geese. Uh, and I, I like watching those because they would they would band them up in the like the Arctic up in Alaska, and those things would fly down and they would stage like in Alberta and Saskatchewan, and then they'd come on down, you know, to the Dakotas and then come on down, eventually make it to us. And uh, it was weird how fronts and stuff, you know, they may they may be in Arkansas and a big front come through, or they show up in Mississippi or or, or Louisiana, and then. You get a warm front, you hear people talk about reverse migration. It's real. You get a warm front, man, that bird would go back up to Louisiana, I mean, to Arkansas, you know, three, four hundred miles, three hundred miles, in like overnight. And, uh, but this one, uh, speck of belly was on the Canada North Dakota border. And a big front came through. Two days later, that bird was at the Rio Grande River on Texas-Mexico border, and I just couldn't believe in two days it flew all the way across the United States. Man, they they will get up and go a long ways. 
the other way. Well, it's pretty amazing. Hey, when are you headed back north again? You don't know? A couple of weeks? Yeah, a couple of weeks probably. Okay. You'll probably be home for the 4th. Head back before the 4th. So we'll get together. We'll get together right. next week. And record well, another anybody, one. anybody wants to hear topics, comment on it. And uh, I know somebody's wanting to hear that frog hunting story that I have. And I'm going to tell it. And... Uh, on one of our next episodes. So, thank you, Rocky. I want to. Hey, I want to talk about one more thing though. Something that's really gotten a lot of press because of the the couple of podcasts with with Ryan Warden and Jeff Foles. I want to hear your perspective on tagging, separation, uh, transporting, transporting uh, waterfowl. I want to hear what you have to say about that. Right now. No, 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 no. Next time. Oh, okay. Yeah, I haven't I listened to those podcasts. I haven't listened to either of those guys' podcasts, so I, uh, I don't know exactly what y'all been talking about. But yeah, I had a lot of tagging and transport uh, issues, and, and uh, <clears throat> I'll talk about it. Okay. All right, Rob. Be careful. Be careful. Okay. I appreciate it, and we want to thank all of you that listen to this edition of the End of the Line podcast, powered by DuckSouth.com.